Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There are three simultaneous crises in 2020, which are all interrelated and mixed up together. The first, of course, is the crisis of democracy, the rise of populism. Uh, The second is the compounding of inequality, increasing uh, chasm between the poor and the wealthy. And the third is the crisis of COVID and the environment. Maybe COVID and the environment could be separated into two. And if there's a, uh, one thing that, that ties these crises together, that makes sense of them, and also makes them quite perplexing, it's the issue of belonging. The world seems to be undermining what it means to belong in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, this week, we already had uh, Kerry Arsenault, the... Um, the main-based writer talking about Milltown and the crisis of belonging in small-town America. Um, uh, Carl Hoffman, the author of Liar's uh, Circus, who followed the Trump circus around America, also speaks about this crisis of belonging. Uh, And last week, we had David Goodhart, British political pundit on, who invented the concept of uh, anywheres and uh, nowheres, this distinction between people rooted and the globalized elite, uh, writing about a, a new world of a meritocratic elite. So belonging is the question and perhaps the answer. And the well-known Financial Times journalist is the author of Free Lunch, uh, a column in the Financial Times, very distinguished economic thinker and writer. Martin Sanbu has a new book out which puts its finger on the challenge and crisis of 2020, the economics of belonging. Uh, Martin, uh, what is belonging? Before we get to its economics, what does it mean, the word to you? Well, to me, uh, it's hard to distinguish it from, from the economics, but, but before I go into the economics, it, it really is about whether you think there is a good place for you as an individual in the wider, the national community, maybe even uh, more than the national community, uh, but that you're not left by yourself or left out or left behind, as we so often say. Uh, I think we had an era of belonging, or at least increasing belonging in, in all Western countries, because this is a phenomenon we see in one country after another for the three, four decades after the Second World War, where we saw countries growing closer together. Wage inequality fell, wealth inequality fell. Really importantly, regional inequality. Smaller, poorer places were catching up with the richer ones, the capital cities. And that all that kind of stopped and sometimes went into reverse in, in the 1980s. You know, I, I've already gone into the economy here because I think 
whether you have a productive place, whether you feel that you are valued in a kind of narrow economic sense, ends up playing into whether you feel valued in a broader cultural sense. It affects your status, it affects your self-esteem, it affects your freedom and your ability to make choices for yourself and those you care about. So all of these things are lumped together. What I'm trying to argue in the book is that causally speaking, what's sort of at the root of what brought this change about is economic. And that's why we have to look at the economics if we want to fix it. Spoke Martin like a true journalist at the Financial Times that sees the, the origins of things in, in economic terms. Uh, you talk about the 50s and 60s, of course, in your book, and, and you just mentioned them, but your book begins actually in March 1933. And the great river of human history divides. Uh, I was particularly intrigued by your observation that there were two responses to the, the great crash of the early 30s. Uh, and those responses were manifested both within weeks of each other in March 33. What happened then? On the same weekend in March 1933, two fundamental you know, thing, two things happened that really marked uh, changes in human history. One was on your side of the Atlantic, it was the inauguration of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the famous, famous speech about how we have nothing to fear but fear itself, uh, and a, a call to action and a promise of swift uh, and radical action, which ended up being in defense of liberal open society and an economy that worked for everyone. The same weekend was the last more or less free election in Weimar, Germany. Uh, the one Hitler was already a chancellor, had been chancellor for a few months, but he called this election, had a huge campaign of intimidation, and that was the election that gave him not quite the majority, but the numbers he needed to push through dictatorial powers immediately after. So at the same time, you saw the rekindling of hope after the Great Depression in the US, and you saw the extinction of hope in, in Germany and soon enough in, in all of Europe, and that was the global conflagration uh, of the Second World War uh, and the Holocaust. And, you know, I, I pointed to this because for several years now, we've been talking about echoes of the 1930s, uh, rise of far-right populism, maybe even fascism, uh, and I wanted to point out that actually the other thing that happened in the 30s was that one country got it right. There was a book uh, that came out in 1935, 1936 called It Can't Happen Here, which sort of imagined, well, mm. what if Roosevelt had lost and a fascist had taken over in the US? So it's a fantastic book to read today, kind of scary. But the point is it didn't happen there. Uh, and part of that, I think, was precisely because Roosevelt, when he had the chance, when he got into power, immediately went about to do one thing after another that even today would seem radical. Any single one of his policies were big changes from what came before. And that's something we hadn't really seen uh, in the global financial crisis, dealing with the long crisis of democracy and inequality. We started seeing it this year with COVID because the problem was so big that many countries really started going completely out of their previous comfort zone to address it. But until now, and it still remains to be seen how we tackle this crisis, uh, there just hadn't been radicalism from the center in the way that we saw with Roosevelt. Martin, would it be fair to say that Roosevelt built or rebuilt liberal democracy on the foundations of belonging? You make the, um, the idea of belonging intrinsic to 
the, the liberal democracy of the post-Second World War age in Western Europe and the United States. What did Roosevelt, in choosing his route over uh, the Nazi route of a kind of xenophobic belonging, how did Roosevelt integrate the idea of belonging into his notion of a just society, of a democratic society, of a fair society? I think what Roosevelt and, and other people at the time, like the British economist John Maynard Keynes, for example, uh, realized and expressed was that liberal democracy cannot simply be a sort of sterile, formal form of government. It has to work for everyone. People have to feel that it works for them. And what he did in the New Deal and, uh, and what every country in the West did after the war uh, was to build a system that had several pillars. It had liberal democracy, rule of law, rights, elections, that sort of package of how politics should work. But it had an economic pillar, uh, which was, you can call it economic solidarity, you can call it social democracy. But the point was that it was a belonging in the sense that everyone could realistically aspire to a decent play for themselves, place for themselves in the economy. You would have a job that would pay you decently. Uh, more or less, no matter your background, of course, you, you know, to put in the effort and so on. But the system would work for you. It, didn't feel, it wouldn't feel like it was rigged against you. There was a third pillar that I talk about in the book, which was the international dimension and openness uh, to other countries. And that's where globalization comes in. Uh, but those three things came together. And I think what has happened uh, over the last couple of decades uh, and that led to the rise of this anti-liberal revolt uh, was that we ignored the economic pillar. We let it erode. We, we held on to the democratic, liberal democracy pillar and certainly to the international openness pillar. But we kind of forgot that this economic pillar, an economy that works for everyone, was crumbling for decades. Uh, and so it was easy for somebody like Trump uh, or uh, Marine Le Pen or the alternative for Germany or the Brexiteers in the UK, it was easy for them to come along and say, we hear you. We see that this economy isn't working for you. So come with us and we'll throw the whole thing out. All three pillars. Go do away with globalization, put up walls, forget about the rule of law. They don't say it in those terms, but that's what the program is. But it starts with, they were the first, credit where credit's due. The populists were the first to recognize that the economic promise hadn't been delivered. Why do the Le Pens and the Trumps and the Brexiteers and the Orbans of the world, why have they reintegrated belonging into the heart of their political and indeed economic uh, ideology? I think it would be rather crude to call them all Nazis, although certainly they seem more sympathetic to uh, the, the Nazi fork in the road in March 1933 than, than the FDR. Fork. What's so central about belonging? Is it a return to the romantic nostalgia of 19th century nationalism? Look, I, I think it's, it's a couple of things. Uh, politically, I think there were good enough politicians to have seen there was a, a gap in the market here because most centrist establishment politicians either weren't talking about it or they weren't credible because they had let, uh, they had let belonging wither. They, had, they were responsible, this is true, they were responsible for an economy that excluded more and more people, that left people behind, that left places behind 
and therefore let local communities, many local communities rot. Uh, so that's one uh, thing. But a second thing uh, is psychological, I think. Uh, I mean, it's fairly clear if you, if you look at, I mean, both kind of common sense about human nature, but also the, the scientific psychology literature. When people are under pressure, when people are under stress, they have a tendency, we have a tendency to look inward, to, uh, to you know, circle the wagons, to become more tribal, uh, and also to look for more, you know, a strong leader. These are pretty common patterns. And uh, we have had decades of economic uh, and social stress for large groups of the populations, although that was, you know, redoubled with the global financial crisis. And, uh, and the aftermath of that. Uh, so in a sense, it's almost surprising that it didn't happen earlier. And of course, in some European countries, it did happen earlier. Some of these movements came on the scene in the 80s uh, when these economic phenomena first started happening. You know, Le Pen did, uh, the Norwegian Progress Party did. That's when they started becoming successful. Uh, Martin, you're not the first to, to make these observations about the relationship between this crisis of belonging and the rise of populism. Uh, but your book, The Economics of Belonging, uh, has uh, the subtitle, A Radical Plan to Win Back the Left Behind and Achieve Prosperity for All. And the core of the book is about fixing the economics of belonging. You're an FT journalist. You're not a polemicist. Uh, I would position you on the, the center left, I guess. We started talking about the economy First of all, I want to make clear that we need to fix the economy in order to fix the politics. Second, a big part of the book uh, is about rejecting the view that the economic bit that's gone wrong has to do with globalization. That's what the populist will have you believe. And it's what a lot of people in the center have started saying globalization has gone too far. Uh, that's what we have to address. That is not going to solve the problem because what really happened was that our economies changed because technology changes, because new jobs uh, become the more profitable jobs. We're not going to go back, even if we close down globalization, we're not going to back, go back to factories with long assembly lines where people do manual work that we had 50 years ago. So uh, the solution is about domestic economic policy, but one that doesn't look back, but tries to look forward. Uh, so above all, we need to embrace change, technological change, the productivity change that means that people need to have new, more productive jobs. But we need to make change safe and we need to make change work for everyone. So, so in one sense, what I'm trying to, to paint a vision of and, and a path to is you could call it an equality of productivity, an economy where opportunities for being productive, doing productive work and therefore well-paid work uh, is accessible to as many as possible. So, you know, maybe we can take the example of the countries that have uh, done this the most successfully, although not perfectly, which are the European Nordic countries. Uh, what you see there is that they have simply got rid of the unproductive, low-paid, low-productivity jobs. You know, I use one example of the, in the book, uh, which is the car wash. You know, how do you get your car washed when you go to, uh, to have it washed? When I was growing up in Norway in the 80s, uh, there was no way you could have your car washed except with one of these big machines, the blue rollers. Um, and when I lived in the US in the early 2000s, you would drive your car into a car wash and you would have three or four typically immigrant men with washcloths descending on your car. The US was the place that invented the automatic car wash. And, and still, 50, 60, 70 years later, 
it would employ people in poor paid jobs doing something by hand that you could do with a machine. I think the difference between these two styles of delivering a service reflect two different economic models, where one, because it requires high wages, even for low paid jobs, uh, it's simply not economical to have low productivity jobs. And so, you know, you invest in the in the automatic car washes. Whereas in the US, because you can get away with paying people poorly, you do that. And you lack the productivity growth and the automation you, you really have. So I would like us to move from an economy where you can pay people little, but then you employ them unproductively, to one where you have to employ them productively in order because, because you have to pay them well. Well, that takes a lot of policies to be right. But first of all, you need to see that that's the principle, right? Get rid of the bad jobs. Don't try to hold on to them. But then, of course, you need to ensure that the new jobs are there and that people can fill them. That means spending a lot of money on education. The Nordic countries do well because they're the ones that spend the most of their GDP on education at all levels. Uh, and you need to ensure that the companies that have better jobs, the ones that do invest in machines, for example, the ones that have... You know, the various newer jobs, the more modern knowledge-based service jobs, for example, that they are willing to expand and hire more. And you do that by having a more aggressive macroeconomic policy. You keep demand, you pump demand into the economy. You don't, you're not afraid of overheating and you, you know, raise interest rates or worry about debt so that you cut deficits. You know, we've, we've seen people move in this direction very slowly, but that's the way we have to go. I'm not sure everyone would agree, Martin. A couple of thoughts on that. The first is this Scandinavian model. I, I remember in the last debates between uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton uh, for the 2016 uh, Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders was going on and on like you were about something in Denmark. And Hillary Clinton, who I'm not necessarily a big admirer, but I thought this was a marvelous moment in the debate. She, she turned to him and said, hey, Bernie, I love, uh, I love Denmark, but we can't be like Denmark. Your native Norway is a remarkable company for many reasons, one of which is that it's enormously wealthy through its natural gas. Is it realistic in particular to imagine that America politically could ever become like Scandinavia? Why, why use the Scandinavian model? I know you're a, you are Scandinavian, so it perhaps comes naturally to you. And it would be nice if the world could become like Norway or, or Denmark, but for so many different political, cultural, and economic reasons, it can't. Now, I'm glad you asked that question because you're exactly right. Uh, the US can't become a Scandinavian country because, for example, the way the Scandinavian model works has to do with the particularities of how unions work and how they work with companies. And that's kind of a cultural, historical tradition that you can't just pick up and transplant somewhere else. Uh, so that's not what I'm trying to argue. Uh, what I do try to argue is that, look, we can see, we can try to understand why these economies work. What is it that in the case of Scandinavia unions do that means that you actually also get productivity and high growth and a pretty egalitarian system? So here is one thing that the US can do if it wants to, indeed has done in the past. You can have a much higher minimum wage, right? Uh, the US minimum wage now is a lot lower in real terms than it used to be. The minimum wage, by the way, is one of the many radical things Roosevelt introduced. Uh, now, 
that could have the same effect as what in Scandinavia happens because unions and employers sit down and unions bargain up the low wages. Scandinavia doesn't have a minimum wage. There's no law that says you have to pay this much. This is all done in collective bargaining. Don't think you can transplant that. But you can achieve the same effect, which is to make it uneconomical to use labor in an unproductive way by having higher minimum wages. And, you know, some states, we've seen this push for higher minimum wages. There's increasing research now showing that actually it doesn't seem to destroy employment. It seem to, seems to increase wages, but keep jobs in existence, maybe new jobs, not the same old ones. Uh, but this is one example of how it's not about becoming like another country. It's about trying to understand the mechanisms that made for success in that country and see, is there an American way or a British way or a French way to do some of the same? Um, Martin, uh, I, I think you know David Goodhart. He's just written a, a really interesting book called um, uh, Head, Hand, Heart, um, which is critical of the very meritocracy you're part of. You were born in Norway. You're a classic success story of the meritocracy. You were educated at Oxford and Harvard. Now you work for the Financial Times. Uh, and you're an example, I think, of a techno for better or worse, a technocratic elite. I think, and I don't want to put words into David's mouth, but since he's not here, I can do them for him. <laughs> he would say in response to your argument, you're obviously right in many ways to try to reintroduce the economics of belonging. But rather than doing away with the guy at the car wash, we need to rethink the very nature of labor. We need to ennoble those guys at the car wash and recognize that in many ways, they're as valuable to our economy and our society as you and I. What would you say to somebody like Goodhart who wants to revalue the very idea of labor? Well, I think actually my program does that quite well because the first step towards revaluing, let's say, the guy at the car wash is to pay him better, pay him a lot better. But you know what? If you do that, it, there will, as an effect, be many fewer people working in those jobs because fewer car wash owners will find it profitable to employ them. There only are that many people because they can get away with paying them uh, as little as they do. Uh, so, you know, we have to be able to keep both of these things in mind. Uh, we should value them more highly. The jobs that would remain in car washing at a higher wage would be more valued in part because they'd be better paid. But let's not kid ourselves that there would be as many of those jobs if we actually uh, treated people as well as they deserve. So we need an answer to the question of what people then can do. Maybe not the concrete answer of what the jobs will be, but some method uh, for making sure that there are other better jobs for them to go to. And, you know, again, you asked about, we can't be like Scandinavia, but we can at least learn from some countries uh, that over time actually turns out that when you force out, when you, when, when, you, when, you, when you kill, in a sense, the very bad jobs, it's not as if nothing happens. Other jobs take their place. And with the right policies, you can try for those jobs to be better. But uh, no, I think we need to be very clear here that valuing those people, valuing people who have no better choices than today's bad jobs, and let's admit they are bad jobs. Um, you know, d doing that doesn't mean keeping them in the jobs they have now, or at least not as many of them, because that's only possible because they're badly treated, unfortunately. 
Uh, Martin, you know this better than I do. As an economics journalist at the FT, uh, we have AI on, on the horizon, which for better or worse is going to do away with those car washing jobs because eventually all car washes and, and manual laboring work like that will probably become automated. We've had a number of people on the show talking about the guaranteed minimum income initiatives, uh, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, Perhaps um, Albert Wenger, for example, the Union Square Ventures partner, is very much a supporter of this, and he's a backer of Andrew Yang. I know you see a role for these kind of state initiatives in making sure that if you can't find work for one reason or other, uh, you won't starve and you won't become homeless. I, I do see that. Uh Look, universal basic income, people argue for it or against it on, on a lot of different grounds. For me, the point of it is not so much as, a, as an anti-poverty policy, but what I think of as an empowerment policy. And th this goes back to how do we value the people who have been left behind or left in the, in the worst jobs? Well, I think it's tremendously important uh, for people to have the power to say no to an abusive situation, to a bad job, uh, to uh, maybe exploitation even. Uh, that is kind of the, the first, the, the primary um, safeguard against exclusion and, and a lack of economic belonging, that people have the wherewithal to say no and say, actually, I'm going to leave this. Um, my my colleague, a colleague of mine at the FT measures something she informally calls the up yours index, which is a sort of number of voluntary quits in the labor market, which is a good way of thinking about, well, if people are voluntarily leaving, leaving their jobs, that means that they have a certain amount of power to go and look for something better. The situation we have today, especially in, in a country like the US, but many other countries, is that you have people trapped in low wage, precarious, unpredictable jobs, but have no ability to leave them because they don't have money to feed their children by the end of the week if they leave. <clears throat> they don't have time to take a few weeks off work to retrain or even the time to look for another job. I mean, this, is, this takes time, effort, mental <coughs> attention, which is thin on the ground when you worked all day. UBI is the best policy to avoid that. Excuse me for my voice. <coughs> if you know that you have a basic safety net level of income, even if you leave your job today, then you have the ability to do that. You will yourself have the freedom to choose on what grounds you would do that because you see a better job you can retrain for because you want to take the time to scour the jobs listings or talk to local employers to see if you can find something better even to take care of your children at special important moments of, of their lives um, and that would also be economically useful because it would put employers on their toes it would force them to up their game make the jobs that they offer more productive, not put all the risk on the employee, you know, shifting that power and the power that the ability to say no gives you means that employers would, would actually have to take employees uh, more seriously. And that again is exactly what we need to value the people at the lower end of the labor market better. Well, what we certainly need, I think, are journalists like Martin Sambu, who aren't just complaining about the situation, aren't just going on and on about Trump or Auburn or Brexit, but are actually figuring out ways to fix um, the problem. His economics of belonging, which is conveniently placed on the bottom of his screen, is an excellent uh, <laughs> policy-orientated polemic, <coughs> I guess, about how to fix 
this crisis of belonging in the early part of the 21st century. Well worth a read. Martin, uh, you are, I wouldn't say stuck or locked. You're lucky enough to be in my old stomping ground of Stoke Newington during the, the crisis. You're stuck at home. What else, in addition to the economics of belonging, your fine new book should people be reading? Well, I'll, I'll just share two books uh, I've just finished reading, uh, one nonfiction, one fiction. Uh, the nonfiction book is Sarah Kenzie's uh, Hiding in Plain Sight, which is one of many, many takes on the Trump phenomenon. Uh, Sarah, but one Sarah, that Sarah's been on the show, actually. Very good. Uh, well, it's, so it's I hope book, your, yeah. your, your, your listeners will, will have read her. The uh, fiction book, the novel, is uh, the latest, the last bit of Ali Smith's uh, quadrology uh, summer uh, this is the latest one it came out this year she has for the last four years been writing a novel a year autumn winter spring and summer um, to try to capture exactly what's happening in a literary way in the world and and in the uk it's beautifully written it's uh, moving and it's about what we all live now so i would recommend that you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.